Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Some countries are having better coronavirus crises than others, and the two, at least in the advanced industrial world as democracies, the two countries which seem to be coming out of 2020 in the worst state of all are the United States and Great Britain, uh, whose uh, whose treatment of the, the crisis, of the coronavirus crisis, could be summarized as being dominated by bluster and self-delusion. Um, that special relationship between the United States and Britain, perhaps, um, has become an anchor, bringing both countries down. Uh, Ian Buruma is a, is a long-time commentator. He teaches at Bard College. Uh, he used to be the editor of the New York Review of Books and is the author of a new book about the relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. Uh, Ian, uh, when I think of the Churchill Complex, uh, I think of an expensive building in some Midwestern college. What's so important about Winston Churchill in this bizarre relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom? Well, one odd thing about the, the Churchill myth that grew and grew after the war is that it seems to be more potent in the United States than it does in Britain itself. And even though the love for, for, for Britain and the, and the British in America has uh, often been somewhat limited, uh, the cult of Churchill has has um, been been extreme, really, and I think it's because Churchill was the kind of the, the, the bulldog face of the Anglo-American role in defeating uh, Hitler, and ever since um, this particular myth of Churchill um, and uh, the villainy um, of Chamberlain, of course, who who was the appeaser has had an enormous effect, I think, on, on politics after the war. And particularly because a lot of American presidents um, wanted to be like Winston Churchill and defend the world and make the world safe for democracy, fight tyrants and that kind of thing, even though often for self-serving reasons. And Churchill was always the model, hence the bust of Churchill in the Oval Office. And they were terrified of being Chamberlain and being seen as appeasers. Uh, reading your book, Ian, uh, this relationship strikes me as one that began quite well. It's quite a dignified, intimate relationship, exemplified by uh, the relationship between Churchill and FDR. And um, over the last 70 years, it's, it's been in complete decline, and it's increasingly dominated, as you say, by bluster and self-delusion. And its climax, if that's the right word, uh, is with uh, Boris Johnson and Trump. Uh, when, while you've been writing this book, have you been struck by the decline of both countries? And do you think well, that 
kind of bringing each other down in this obsession with this absurd notion of a, uh, a special relationship? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's gone up and down. And yes, the decline is the very reason I wrote the book, because I grew up, um, since I was born and, and grew up in the Netherlands, and although my, my mother was British, um, grew up very much with the idea that, that our liberators were the English-speaking peoples. They were British, Canadian, American, and so on. So uh, I rather idealized uh, Britain and America when I grew up and made plastic airfix models of Lancaster bombers and that kind of thing. And to see the present state of the United States and Britain is a very sad sight. But when you say it's been in decline ever since the war, as a relationship, that's not necessarily true, because I would say one sort of tragic comic, more tragic than comic, but high point in the relationship was the Iraq war with Tony Blair and uh, George W. Bush, both thinking that they were Winston Churchill all over again. And, uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxon people standing together against the tyranny while the cowardly and abject Europeans did nothing and all that sort of thing. Uh, an image that Tony Blair believed in just as much as George W. Bush did. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons we're stuck with Trump today. But um, so you're right, it's full of delusion and bluster, but um, this has had its ups and downs since the war. What about truth telling, Ian? Uh, we had somebody on the show who just has written a book about the Iraq war, arguing quite forcefully over 500 pages that George Bush was telling lies. Uh, and perhaps by implication, um, uh, Tony Blair uh, was as well, or was what the British would say, telling pork pies. Um, what has been the relationship in, in terms of this Anglo-American axis uh, in the history of truth-telling and lying? Uh, Trump and Johnson, of course, are uh, world-beating liars. That seems to be what they specialize in. Um, why has this Anglo-American relationship been based on lies? Is it because of this delusion or illusion of specialness? Well, I think that has something to do with it. I don't think all presidents and prime ministers lied in equal measure. I think that, that Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are indeed uh, uh, rather unusual. Um, and lies are told all the time. And during the, the Iraq war, the most, uh, the clearest one lie was that it was uh, fought for um, weapons of mass destruction, which were never found, of course. But that didn't mean that they didn't believe in what they were doing. Both were very religious men, Tony Blair and, and George W. Bush, and saw it as a kind of, almost as a, as, as a mission uh, to fight this war against what they saw, rightly saw, um, as a tyrant. And uh, the, the, the myth of Churchill and of, of Chamberlain is one of these things that has come up every time there was a foreign crisis in which there was a case of whether uh, Britain and America should intervene. And Churchill's uh, bulldog face turns up, but also this idea of Munich, Munich 1938, when Chamberlain uh, gave uh, Hitler the go-ahead to invade Czechoslovakia. And so the terror of being like Chamberlain is almost as potent as uh, the, the delusion of being Churchill. And so out of that, uh, sometimes come out and out lies, sometimes come lies for a cause that 
people actually do fervently believe in. What strikes me, though, about your book is that Britain and the, uh, Britain and the United States, while different in many ways, were united by a, a mutual arrogance. You mentioned Blair. Blair was the an, an incredibly arrogant politician in, in a kind of 19th century colonial sense of improving the world and having so much faith in his own moral superiority that he imposed this story. He, he participated in this terribly mistaken war. Um, do you think that what unites Britain and the United States over the last 70 years is a mutual arrogance? Uh, and uh, uh, an arrogance which in no way is based on, on reality. Well, I think um, if they are united in a certain type of arrogance, I think it goes back much further than back than um, World War II. There, there, always, there has been this idea of American destiny and America being the, you know, the, the city on the hill and so on and so forth. And there is a kind of Protestant tradition in both countries of, that goes back a long way and um, to some extent justified um, certain aspects of colonialism too, that the, that the Anglo-Saxons had a sort of um, a special uh, kind of freedom, that the Anglo-Saxons were, were uniquely free Sometimes the Germans were included in this too, the Teutonic races. But the idea that we were uniquely free in Britain and America and should not only be a model for the world, but that it was a kind of mission to bring freedom to other countries, which of course is closely linked to the Christian missionary spirit as well. And I think that goes very deep in America and uh, to some extent in certain periods uh, in Britain as well. Um, yeah, and, it, and, and this was in, in many ways summarized in, in Winston's famous multi-part history of the English-speaking people. But do you think that this weird relationship, what you call the Churchill complex, has brought out the worst in both peoples, in both nations? This well, idea of Britain being Greece and highly sophisticated and America being Rome and being all powerful, it's so absurd and so based on fantasy that we've actually exaggerated each other's absurdities. Well, the idea of the Americans being barbarians, of course, is a common European prejudice. It's not just a, a, a British or English one. Uh, and it was a way, it's always the, the way that the weaker party tries to sort of build itself up vis-a-vis -a, -vis a stronger power. I mean, when, when Indians... Uh, in, in that, I mean, the population of India uh, talk about their deep spiritual values and so on. Um, uh, that was often a, a sort of self-defensive way to, um, to uh, not combat necessarily, but to sort of to, to take a particular position towards stronger powers. But, um, and so I think it was a sign of weakness on the side of the British when they started sort of talking about where the, the Greeks to the American Romans and, and, and all that. I don't think it necessarily always brought out the worst in both countries. One reason I, I, I wrote the book, um, I, one is I already mentioned out of sadness about the state we're in now, but was also because I think there was something admirable about standing up to fascism and Hitler and so on in the way they did. Uh, I think Churchill had many flaws. Uh, he was certainly an imperialist. 
uh, he, he, he was certainly in modern terms clearly a racist, but I think he, he also had a deep belief in parliamentary democracy in a kind of liberalism. And until today uh, and the present um, incumbent in the White House, most American presidents did too, whatever their flaws and however foolish the wars they fought. Um, there, is, there is something admirable about both countries which one should not completely dismiss and precisely because it is admirable, I wrote this book more in, in well, partly in sorrow and partly in anger. I think that goes without saying. And what you're talking about is an event more than 70 years ago. And of course, the British and the Americans weren't the only people to stand up to fascism. Uh, again, without wishing to get into a, a history lesson here, but certainly the, the Russians lost more people in their fight against the Nazis than either the British or the Americans. But leaving that aside, reading your book kind of reminds me of a bad marriage or a marriage that may have begun well and has gone into decline, a shabby, sad, melancholic marriage. Um, and if there is another woman in this marriage, um, it's Europe. What is the relationship yes. between Europe and this Churchill complex, this weird self-flagellating relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States? Well, I think that's very important. Um, if it's a shabby uh, relationship and a bad marriage, I think that's more on the British side than the, on, on the American. The Americans were never, never thought the relationship was quite so special as, as people in, in Britain, especially England, uh, have thought. Uh, and the Americans actually consistently, since World War II, wanted Britain to play a major role in Europe as a European power so that they could be the sort of the, the, the bridge between Europe and the United States. It was the British who, um, whenever it mattered, uh, except in certain episodes, chose to, be, chose to be in this special relationship and be, be the sort of junior partner or the submissive wife or whatever image you want to conjure up uh, to America, rather than being, play, playing the, the, the leading role in Europe that they should have done from the beginning. Um, and if there is a third wife, in some ways it's France, because of course during World War II it was de Gaulle, also full of sort of wonderful delusion and bluster, who was trying to hold up the honor of France, something that Churchill understood very well, it irritated the Americans. Mm. But uh, famously, uh, uh, Churchill once said to de Gaulle at the, on, on the eve of D-Day, the Normandy landings, when de Gaulle was being particularly irritating and arrogant. And he said, don't forget, if we have to choose between the continent and the open sea, we'll always cho cho choose the open sea. Mm. And Britain Which has. Is, it's, it's the classic rejoiner to the mistress when the mistress is demanding that you leave your wife. Yes, I think that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> and of course, we all fantasize about French mistresses, or some of us anyway. Uh, some, some people will note, Ian, you're, you're speaking to me from New York. You teach at Bard University, but your background is a wonderful street in Amsterdam. And you are, amongst many things, a Dutchman, uh, the most international of Dutchmen. There's this great moment in the book. Uh, Macmillan is arguing um, uh, with... I, I think it was uh, uh, I think it was Eisenhower about Suez, and he says, 
if Egypt could get away with pushing Britain around, Britain would become another Netherlands. But isn't the Dutch model the best one? Don't we all, at least in the UK, shouldn't we want to become the Netherlands to become this vibrant, vital, honest country that doesn't tell lies, that is satisfied with its more moderate role after a period of great powerdom? What do the Dutch well, teach us about this weird relationship? Don't, don't get carried away um, just because of your annoyance with your own native country. Um, there are plenty of lies told in the Netherlands. Uh, the Dutch have not been great on their own colonial history. Uh, and there's a pretty vibrant far right wing in Holland now too. But I think what, what um, Macmillan really meant is that we'll be, you know, the Dutch once had a great empire and where the sort of, you know, the leading trading nation of Europe and so on a long time ago. But, and uh, I think what Millen, Macmillan meant was we'll be a sort of spent force, we'll just be another, you know, slightly bigger, but another mediocre European country. Um, but the same Macmillan uh, also said when he was actually very keen for Britain to join uh, the, what was then the European Economic Community, that Britain had only been a major power for a few centuries and could only continue to play a major role as part of Europe. So he wasn't deluded about that. And as far as your question, you know, what can be learnt from the Dutch, uh, I suppose, uh, I don't, I'm not sure that the British have all that much to Maybe learn, learn from, from Amsterdam. Uh, Amsterdam <laughs> and Holland obviously are, are very different places. Mm. Um, one of the things that struck me about your book, um, Ian, is how quickly the decline accelerated mm. in the post-Thatcher-Reagan period. And of course, America and, 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 and Britain now are marked by, I think, generally, most people would agree with this, the, the failure of neoliberalism. Hmm. Um, do you think that's the core tragedy in the contemporary relationship of the United States and, and, America, uh, and, and the UK? We have both fell in love with the, um, with the specter of neoliberalism, which has turned out to be a gigantic failure on most levels. Well, I think that's, that's probably true, uh, certainly if you look at things like healthcare, especially in America, worse than in, in, in Britain. But um, it, was, it was started in the Reagan-Thatcher era, again, full of bluster and delusions that, that, that sort of complete free mark, unfettered markets, um, bringing the trade unions down uh, and all that um, was presented as, again, a sort of a unique Anglo-Saxon love of freedom and so on and so forth. But I think more important in this history is what happened after the end of the Soviet empire in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, when it looked as though the Anglo-Saxon world, and particularly uh, the US, was riding very, very high. And I think that was a moment of hubris that led to the fall that we're now experiencing. And by that, I mean that with the fall of the Soviet Union, there was no more reason really for the, or wasn't seen as such, for the West to have a, a kind of counter model to communism that was in its own way egalitarian and was sort of social democratic, had a welfare state and stuck more or less to the American New Deal and so on. It wasn't seen to be necessary. 
we were free, we won the, 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 the Cold War, and now we can take, uh, take, you know, take off the fetters. And I think that, uh, and that was applauded as much by the Democrats here and, and Labour and New Labour in Britain as it was by the Conservatives. And I think that's what um, caused the hollowing out of the state and so on and so forth with all the consequences that we see uh, today, including the response to coronavirus. Your book, uh, Ian, focuses 95, 99% on the political relationship between uh, the United Kingdom and the United States uh, in, 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 in the post-Second World War age. But I'm guessing in 50 or 100 years, when historians look back at this relationship and the contribution and the role of both the United States and the United Kingdom in the world, they won't look at politics, they'll look at culture. Your book touches on this. There's some references to Ian Fleming, to the Beatles, to James Bond. Um, your own uncle was John Schlesinger, a very distinguished uh, movie director. Do you think that future historians will focus on the Anglo-American contribution to culture, to movies, to writing, um, perhaps even to journalism? Is that the real legacy of this English-speaking people that Churchill wrote so glowingly about? Well, that would be a positive legacy. Um, yeah, I meant in a positive way yeah, rather than I, the absurdity uh, no, I, of all the, the I, bluster I, and self-delusion of, of the politicians and the politics. Ab absolutely. But I think that the popular culture, to, to some extent, I mean, uh, certain aspects of it, certainly um, bolstered the myths that I'm talking about. And I, I use the word myth because in many of my books, I've always been interested partly for autobiographical reasons since my mother was British and my father Dutch so from a very early age I was very always made very to feel very aware of cultural differences language differences and so on so I've always been fascinated by the stories people tell themselves about themselves what is it to be British or Japanese or American or whatever German whatever it is and so the book is is, is as much about the idea behind the politics as the political events themselves and culture contributed to that. If you think of um, the, the, the days before Brexit, when the propaganda campaign for Brexit was, um, was set up, you know, movies and uh, old film clips and, you know, talk about Spitfires and, you know, the film Dunkirk and so on, they all played a role in bolstering that 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 myth that the, that's at least some of the British and again I should say the English particularly have about themselves the finest hour and all that and a lot of that is cultural. Although I would like to see a book about the Anglo-American relationship in terms of perhaps the history of rock and roll which is certainly a more positive um reflection of the relationship. Anyway, Ian, everyone should read The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. It's a, it's a wonderful narrative, a richly researched narrative of this so-called special relationship, which seems to have brought uh, both countries down simultaneously in different ways. Uh, as I said, you're you're in New York at the moment in this weird summer of 2020, not Amsterdam. What else are you reading, Ian? You're a, you're a very erudite man, an expert not only in 
uh, Anglo-American politics, but in East Asian cultures. You used to be the editor of the New York Review of Books. What would you suggest people read to make themselves wiser, more erudite in these strange times? Well, I don't know about wise or erudite. Myself, uh, I've tended to escape from uh, daily reality, not by reading books about COVID-19 or uh, racial problems in the United States today and so on, but by going into the classics, taking me away into a completely different world. So I've been reading Stendhal and I've been reading a Japanese novelist of the night, all about brothel life in Tokyo in the 1920s. And so any, it's, I love literature because it takes you out of the time and place that you're uh, living in. And there are plenty of reasons to be out, want to be out of there now. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.